guys. Welcome to Relatable. Happy Friday. These weeks have been going by super fast for whatever reason. I don't know if you guys feel like that. Maybe it's just because there's so much going on in the news. It feels like I can't even keep up. There's so much to talk about every week that it goes by so quickly. But for some of you, it kind of might be dragging on because your state is still locked down and you're wondering when we're ever going to exit this dystopia. I don't know. But for me, the weeks have been going by so fast. I can't believe we're already on Friday. Today, we are going to talk about a few news stories. We're going to talk about Wayfair. We're going to talk about Nick Cannon and anti-Semitism and anti-white racism and if that's even possible. And then we're probably going to talk about a couple other news stories if I um, have time for it. And then we are going to end with good news. We're going to end with some um, with comforting affirmation from the word of God. I know a lot of you have told me that you're just stressed out and kind of over the news and talking about all the conflicts that are going on, which of course I completely understand. At the same time, there are a lot of you who are always asking me to keep you up to date on the most contentious issues. And so I'm going to try to balance that. Monday, you guys have requested that I do a most misused, and I will do that for you. I haven't decided which verse I'm going to use. If I haven't done Jeremiah 29 11 yet, I'll probably do that. But if there's another verse or like a group of verses that you guys see going around today that is kind of decontextualized, taken out of context, just let me know and I'll try to cover that. I've done a few before. Judge not lest you be judged. God is within her. She cannot fail. Um, Let's see. There are a few more that I've done. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you can go back and listen to those most misused episodes where we dive into the context and see what these verses actually actually mean. So we'll be taking a break from the news then, but today we've got to get into some of this crazy stuff that has been happening. So let's talk about Wayfair. If you haven't heard what happened with Wayfair, I will let you know. So Wayfair is a furniture website. Um, It has everything. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Zappos is, I guess, for clothes. Uh, Wayfair is like that for furniture. It's been accused of trafficking children through their website. So more accurately, they have been accused of completing the financial aspect of these kinds of trafficking transactions through their site. The theory goes like this, that there are certain products on Wayfair's website, including storage products. This was the big one that was going around on Twitter as a front for selling children for sex. There were uh, storage cabinets and pillows and cabinets for tens of thousands of dollars online. And attached to some of these products appeared to be names that corresponded with missing children in different parts of the country. And then the SKU numbers, uh, when entered into this Russian search engine, came up as a disturbing pictures of little girls. And then people discovered similar overpriced products on Amazon. So that's a summary of what happened. This was going on on social media saying that Wayfair and Amazon are really just front organizations or front groups, at least uh, part of these uh, part of these companies for trafficking children. Um, this started on Twitter really at the beginning of June, but then it moved to a subreddit, r slash conspiracy, and then it spilled over into all of social media. Now, this is in a lot of ways connected to what those who follow Q, Q Anon believe and talk about online, that the world is being run by this elite cabal made up of billionaires and celebrities that are not only causing a lot of the political chaos that we see, but also pushing, for example, the LGBTQ agenda and most famously are in charge of child sex, uh, the child sex trafficking industry. That is what a lot of people who follow Q believe and really everything they talk about kind of centers on that idea. Now, some of the people talking about Wayfair have no idea that this is kind of in some ways connected to Q or it's at least become connected to Q. Not everyone who is talking about this is connected to Q, but there's a large portion of the internet uh, that is both connected to Q and this conversation or this story about Wayfair. The people who have been swept up into these accusations of running um, uh, running a, a 
pedophile ring is what they call it, or people like Tom Hanks, Hillary Clinton, Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres. It's also connected to the Jeffrey Epstein scandal loosely. Uh, the bulk of all of this kind of started with Pizzagate when a bunch of emails surfaced from John Podesta. He was a consultant to Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, and Bill Clinton and those in his circle. Uh, there was an accusation that uh people that people who were connected to him were running a pedophile ring through a pizza place in DC called Comet Ping Pong. So it's all loosely connected, not necessarily all directly influencing one another, but it's all kind of loosely connected. The documentary Out of Shadows talked about some of this, and I did a whole episode on Out of Shadows and what I think about that and the whole QAnon thing. So you can go back and listen to it if you want more of my thoughts on that. As far as Wayfair goes specifically, though, if you listen to people like, for example, Jocko Buyans, who has been in the fight against sex trafficking for a long time, really knows the ins and the outs of the industry. He will say what I also personally believe, that there's just not enough evidence to prove that this is uh, happening. Uh, now, some of this stuff is super sketchy and weird. Wayfair's statement saying that none of it is true didn't explain why some products were overpriced. They said that the storage cabinets were accurately priced because they're industrial grade, but they didn't talk about the pillows and the baby items that were uh, priced as thousands of dollars. Same thing with Amazon. We don't know why some of these products were so overpriced. There have also been uh, alleged former employees of Wayfair who say, yeah, I could see some of this happening here, some of the sketchy things that went on when I worked there. But some of the things that people are citing as evidence, I'm just not sure. Like people, for example, are pointing to these pillows that are priced as $8,000 on Amazon. And there are a lot of weird reviews on these pillows that people who are accusing Amazon of trafficking children are saying are, are proof of the fact that these pillows are really just a front for the trafficking transaction. But if you go and you look at some of these reviews, they're just funny. They're just making fun of the fact that this pillow is so overpriced. They're saying things like, oh, I, I bought this for my my third yacht after I sold my private jet and I slept like uh, an angel all night. Like they're just kind of ridiculous and, and funny reviews. I don't see how that is any kind of evidence that this is happening via Amazon. I'm just not buying that. Uh, as for the names that are associated with the Wayfair products, the names that happen to correspond to missing children throughout the United States, it's probably just a coincidence. WUSA9.com ran a good piece on this, and here's what it says about this part of the story. For example, people linked a missing girl named Samara Duplessis to a $10,000 Wayfair pillow with Duplessis in the name. But the family reported that she was back home in May. Additionally, a search for Duplessis on the website will bring back a number of different items. All of the other items that the search yields are considerably less expensive. People also pointed out that one of the expensive cabinets from the original post is named Samaya. That is also the name of a teenager reported missing from Columbus, Ohio. However, Samaya said that those claims are false in a video she posted to her Facebook account. A search for Samaya on Ohio's missing person database yields no results. Other examples include a Durrett coffee table that people linked to the case of Mary Durrett. However, she went missing in 2017 and was found safe later the same month. Multiple items uh, people have linked to missing children cases have been on Wayfair's store since before those children went missing. They are among many products sharing such a name. In the video, um, in the video above in this article, Verify reporter Jason Puckett demonstrates how almost any name can be searched on Wayfair and linked to a random missing person, um, a random missing person report to make a sinister looking but ultimately false accusation. Now, as far as the SKU numbers uh, yielding results in a Russian search engine that uh, the, the pictures that come up are young children, the pictures of these children don't actually correspond with the names on the product that apparently allegedly correspond with a recently missing child. So you do get pictures, disturbingly, of random young girls, but they're not the girls whose name is on the product and were reported as missing. Um, it's when you apparently search SRC USA, which is a allegedly a code used by pedophiles. Some of these people who are talking about this story are saying, followed by these skew numbers from Wayfair that these pictures come up. 
But according to the same article that I was just reading, if you put any series of numbers along with SRC USA into this Russian search engine, apparently you get pictures of children, not just SKU numbers from Wayfair. So what does that mean? I, I don't know, but I think it's enough to tell us that the whole uh, search engine SKU number thing is not enough to indict Wayfair or Amazon. Now, all this to say is anything possible when it comes to child self, uh, sex trafficking? Sure, anything is is possible. Child sex trafficking is not only real, it's extremely widespread. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is propped up by widespread demand of child pornography and child prostitution and predominantly, disproportionately in the United States. Every day, children are being trafficked, they're being kidnapped, they're being sold, raped, and abused. That is... Something that happens, that is not a conspiracy theory. Uh, are there people in power who um, who are a part of this and who are propping this and probably aiding and abetting this stuff? I, I'm confident there are. This kind of thing doesn't keep going. Is it this lucrative without people in power throughout the world who are helping? Uh, the evil that exists in this universe, we know as Christians, knows no bounds. And the primary victims of this evil are always going to be the vulnerable. They're especially going to be children who just can't defend themselves. I mean, we see that, for example, via abortion. You have people who are willing to stick a, a needle full of poison into the beating heart of a, a living, moving baby in the womb so that they go into cardiac arrest and die and then dismember that child with forceps. Like if we are willing as a society to not just allow that, but to celebrate that in the name of women's empowerment, then of course you can believe that there are people, unfortunately millions and millions of people, powerful people, rich people who are not only allowing sex trafficking to happen, uh, but are also a, a part of it. Um, Our Rescue is an organization that works to free children from sex trafficking. They have stories of the victims on their pages and it's just tragic. I encourage you to check that out. Um, it will open your eyes. It will break your heart to just some of the devastating evil that is that is going on. Uh, another example of this uh, attacking of the vulnerable is happening in major cities throughout the United States, not just through sex trafficking, but also through um, abuse and also through murder. This is especially happening in New York City, where Mayor Bill de Blasio, who I've said many times, world's worst mayor, right next to Chicago and Seattle mayors, shifted $1 billion away from the NYPD, shrunk the police force, and disbanded the, disbanded the anti-crime unit. We're going to talk a little bit more about the effects of that and how that is disproportionately and unfortunately affecting children in just one second. I am going to shift to talking about something much more positive. And that is what you are going to do with your future. So you probably have a lot of dreams and goals and maybe you feel like they're put on hold right now because you don't know what's going to happen next. It seems like our country is in a state of disarray, but it is always wise to plan for the future. And Ashford University wants to help you do that. And they want to help you to achieve your goals and do the things that you want to do in life. Ashford University's online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn on a convenient and flexible flexible schedule at Ashford. Expert faculty teaches you real world skills from real world experience and online classes built for life's twists and turns. And there are a lot of twists and turns right now. So you need that flexible schedule. And you also need these practical life skills that unfortunately too many young people just don't have anymore. You can learn from home. You can learn from wherever you feel comfortable. You can pursue a degree in one of Ashford's 60 plus programs like business administration, healthcare administration, psychology, with 24 7 access to your classroom, daily support, and financial aid available, Ashford gives you the tools you need to help make your dreams a reality. So, dare to dream big. Your tomorrow starts today at Ashford University. There is no fee to apply, so there's really nothing to lose. There's no standardized testing that is required to enroll. Go to ashford.edu/ally. That's a 
A-L-L-I-E. That is ashford.edu slash Allie, ashford.edu slash Allie. Not all programs are available in all states, so just make sure that it is available where you live. Okay, now shifting back to, unfortunately, these vulnerable communities being disproportionately affected by bad policymaking, which uh, helps lead to violence. Violent crime, according to the New York Post, is the highest that it has been in New York City in 30 years. In 30 years, while simultaneously Bill de Blasio is shrinking the police force, he said this, we are reducing the size of our police force by not having the next recruit class. We are reducing our overtime levels. We're shifting functions away from police to civilian agencies. Uh, You know who is going to be hurt by this for the millionth time? It's not going to be the rich people. It's not going to be the powerful people. It's not going to be Bill de Blasio, who has his own taxpayer-funded security. It's not going to uh, be any of the uh, elites in New York who are pushing for the disbanding and the defunding of the police. It's going to be people in poor communities. It's going to be women. It's going to be children. And the gun laws are so strict in New York City that they're not even going to be able to defend themselves. The only people who are going to be able to get guns and who can get guns in New York City are the criminals. Uh, A one-year-old baby was sleeping in a stroller over the weekend at a cookout with his family and someone drove by, stuck a gun out of the window, shot him in the stomach and murdered him. Here is the father and I believe the grandmother of that little boy. You took my son's life. I can't get that back. I can't hold him no more. I can't hear him calling me daddy no more. I can't kiss him no more. I can't play with him no more. I can't do nothing with him no more. Like I gotta put my I gotta put my son in the ground now, and he's only one. His birthday two months in two months. He didn't live to see two. Like he didn't live life. And it's like I wanted to get him out this violence before something like this happened. I mean that should just break your heart. That is so similar to what the mother and the father of the eight-year-old little girl who was shot and killed at a Black Lives Matter protest outside of the Wendy's at which Rayshard Brooks was shot by a police officer in Atlanta. That is exactly what they said as well. You're saying that Black Lives Matter. What about this black eight-year-old little girl that you just shot and killed? What about this little black one-year-old little boy? When are we going to realize, when are we going to wake up to the fact that the problems that are disproportionately affecting the black community are not going to be helped by disbanding or defunding or demonizing the police. Like this is what always happens. Um, This happened after Ferguson Two local officials kowtow to the people who say that the police are all bad, that they need to be held back. They need to be minimized. And now it's like I said, they need to be defunded altogether. And while anti-police rhetoric and attitude um, are at a high, that is when criminals come in. That's when they take advantage of the situation. When police are under the spotlight and they know that every move they make is going to be scrutinized and they don't want to make the next headline, they don't want to be the next reason for the protest, that is when criminals swoop in and they devastate communities. They become more brazen. They know that they are less likely to be caught doing what they want to do, the criminal activity that they desire to engage in. And so uh, they move even more swiftly and even more brazenly and the people that are affected are those that cannot defend themselves namely poor women and children that's just what happens that's what's happening right now that's why more people are being murdered in these big cities than we have seen in decades that and the fact that the lockdowns have people cooped up um drugged up unfortunately in a lot of cases and purposeless which is always trouble especially for young men that's just true aoc said in an interview recently that crime is up because people are hungry and are stealing a loaf of bread to feed their family. Girl, this is not Les Mis. That is not what's going on here. There is a link. There is a link between poverty and crime. That is for sure. You can look at every bit of data and you absolutely see a link between poverty and crime. But shoplifting, theft, isn't what is up in New York. It is a murder that is up in New York right now by 130%. That's not just a little uptick. That is a large jump from last year to this year.
And so uh, you're not going to be able to say that this is simply because of an economic, uh, just because of an economic downturn. People aren't going out and shoplifting bread. The numbers just don't show that. The stabbings are up. The shootings are up. The murder is up. The assault is up. The child abuse is up. People aren't just doing that because they're hungry. And we are talking about one of the wealthiest cities in the world with enough resources, literally, for every single person who lives there. That's not to say there aren't people struggling, that there aren't people in poverty. There absolutely are. But uh, people aren't going out and stealing bread out of the window of a bakery because they're hungry. There are so many organizations and so many resources for people in New York City. Like we're not talking about a third world country here. People are committing crimes because essentially, ultimately, they want to commit crimes. People are killing babies because they can, because evil exists. The leftist worldview in a lot of ways refuses to ascribe responsibility or to expect decency from those that they have decided are a part of the irrevocably oppressed class. That is just not a biblical worldview, by the way. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness that we can look at the evil in the world and we can know and trust in the fact that God is a God of justice, that he is going to hold every single murderer accountable, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, uh, that his wrath is not going to go unquenched. Like, isn't that our hope? Don't we want Don't we want that? Don't we want justice? Don't we want to serve a God who is impartial in his execution of justice? We do. If black lives matter, and they do, what about these black lives? Like how many times do we have to talk about this? How many times do we have to say that the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of black people, of black young people, in this country are murdered by other black people. And the police are the only ones in a lot of these cases who are mitigating the carnage in these inner cities. Before, how many times do we have to say that? Before the leftist activists wake up and realize that that is the problem in a lot of these communities. I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about police reform. Like I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about uh, when police do overstep their bounds, when they do use their force to bully people, to hurt people, and even to kill people unjustly. We should talk about that. Like I think we should hold police accountable. I think we do all want more transparency. We do want to make sure that police are treating people equally across the board. Absolutely. But let's not kid ourselves here. Let's not ignore when babies, when young men, when young women, when children are being slaughtered in the streets of these inner cities, not by the police, but by each other. Like, are we just going to ignore that and keep saying that black lives matter? Black lives don't matter to you if black lives only matter sometimes. So I think that we just need to be clear about that and we need to be fair about that. And just to be fair, and both sides have selective outrage on this. That's absolutely true. That there are people on the right who will not even look into a case in which um, a black person was possibly unfairly abused by the police. And there are a bunch of people on the left who won't even talk about the violence in inner cities, the the crime that is being committed in these inner cities disproportionately against black people. Uh, so there certainly is some partisan selective outrage and my encouragement to all of us. And I am trying to uh, make sure that this is true of me, that we care about injustice of all kinds, that all people, no matter who they killed them, are made in the image of God and therefore they are valuable. It doesn't matter what race their their murderer is. But if we want to talk about something that is systemic, something that is pervasive, something that is even seemingly institutional, like we need to talk about this violence in the inner cities and we don't need to even entertain this lunacy of disbanding the police when very often that is the only line of defense that poor women and children have in these communities. Okay, moving on. Uh, Let us talk about another form of craziness and injustice that apparently we're not really allowed to talk about. And that is Nick Cannon spewing uh, what we're, I don't even know how else to say it or how else to describe it, anti-white views and anti-Semitic views. So if you didn't hear about this, I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown. He has a show, a podcast 
on Viacom CBS. On the show, he argued uh, there's there's this clip going around and it's long, so I won't play the whole thing. He argued that white people are actually, quote, closer to animals than other races. Our lack of melanin is a defect. He said that a melanin equals compassion. And so the more melanated you are, according to his logic, the more compassionate you are. And white people don't have any choice, according to Nick Cannon, but to be evil. I'm not going to lie. I burst out laughing when I watched this clip. It's it's uh, it's like two and a half minutes of a very superstitious person with like their tinfoil hat on trying to articulate a theory that they just read about in the dark holes of the internet, but they're trying to pass it as, as academic or some like intellectual revelation. I mean, there's no other word for this except for racism. It's ridiculous, but it is racism. Critical theorists can try to change the words all they want to, to try to say that black people, for example, can't be racist, that only white people can be racist because racism, they say, is prejudice plus power and only white people have power. But that's absurd. That's absurd for any logically thinking, for any clear thinking person. Racism is a form of hate. It's a specific form of hate. Hate for someone because of their skin color or a feeling of superiority to someone because of your skin color. And we know from the Bible that God doesn't have some nuanced critical theory definition of what constitutes as hate. If you hate someone in your heart, Jesus says that you are a murderer. You can't love God and hate your brother. First John tells us you can be poor and hateful. You can be rich and hateful. You can be white and hateful. You can be black and hateful. God is not going to judge you by how many oppression points or privilege points you are assigned to your identity group by Marxists. Like that's not how it's going to work. And this is why, this is part of why Marxism is such a terrible worldview, by the way. It holds the so-called oppressed groups by a lower standard of morality than everyone else. And the result is not only bad for other groups, all the other groups, it's bad for the oppressed groups too, because it traps them in cycles of justified, seemingly justified bitterness and resentment and victimhood. And that's not to say that certain groups have not been oppressed and that there aren't people in those groups who are still oppressed today. It is absolutely true that black people had felt the brunt of the most severe racism for the longest amount of time in the United States. No one is arguing against that. I'm not all I'm not at all also trying to paint white people as the historic victims here. I have no interest in that at all. I just don't even want to play that game. It is simply to say that excusing the kind of hatred that Nick Cannon articulated about white people just based on the color of his skin is what we call the soft bigotry of low expectations, specifically when it comes to moral standards. Nick Cannon, according to this thinking, can't be expected to be loving and understanding and see people equally and have a view of all people as equally valuable because he is part, the logic goes, of an oppressed group. That's the kind of stuff, guys, that rots people's hearts and souls. And therefore, it rots whole societies if everyone thinks that way. So, Nick Cannon expressed racism against white people. And I actually think that this attitude is not only pretty prevalent, but also pretty acceptable, even somewhat even in the evangelical church. I talked about this on Wednesday with Dr. Shinvi. Whiteness, we're told, is something that we need to divest of or to repent of, uh, something to let go of and deny. Blackness is something that we are told should be fully manifested and celebrated because whiteness has been synonymized by critical theorists uh, with bigotry and oppression. But that uh, that um, insistence upon always correlating the two is racism. Negative generalizations based on race is racism. There was this infographic, and we're gonna go. Ba- we're gonna loop back to Nick Cannon in just a second. But there was this infographic going around from the National Museum of African American History talking about whiteness and what whiteness is, uh, the aspects and assumptions, we'll put it up on the screen, but the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. So I'm just going to list you some of the things that the National Museum of African American History and Culture says are exclusive and unique to whiteness. And these are they're not saying that these are good things. This is just white culture. Um, individualism, the individual is the primary unit, self-reliance, independence, autonomy, um, emphasis on the scientific method, so objective, rational, linear 
thinking. Um, family structure, nuclear family, husband is the, the breadwinner. Children should have own rooms and, and be independent. Um, let's see. They say Protestant work ethic, hard work is the key to success. That's a part of white culture, according to them. Uh, religion, Christianity is uh, is the norm. They, white people, apparently we um, we respect authority, heavy value on ownership of goods and space and property. Another aspect of whiteness, this museum says, is to plan for the future. Delayed gratification and the belief that tomorrow will be better. Uh, holidays are based on Christian religions. Okay. Justice is based on English common law. Protect property and entitlements. Intent counts according to according to this group. Uh, that's what white people think. We believe in uh, competition. We believe that we must always, quote, do something about a, a situation. We believe in decision making. So that is part, apparently, of white culture. Now, if you didn't know any better, if I didn't tell you, maybe I should have done this. If I didn't tell you who this was from, you might think that this was from a white supremacist organization talking about the inherent, uh, the the inherent really superiority of white people. You're are you trying to say that people who aren't white aren't individualists, like don't care about the nuclear family, aren't hardworking? don't show up on time, aren't organized, aren't planning for the future, aren't people who want to fix problems, aren't people who believe in the so-called Protestant work ethic, don't believe that Christianity is the norm. Like, have you ever met a black person? Most black people that I know are are very strong Christians. Like, they believe in a lot of these things that the National Museum of African American History and Culture are saying are exclusive to whiteness. And we know, according to the Bible, that some of these things are just uh, objectively what people of all ethnicities are supposed to strive to. Like, hard work is not a white characteristic. That is a characteristic that we are all to strive toward like we are all to work excellently as for the Lord and not for man we are all supposed to believe in objective truth the scientific method I mean are you talking about just the the idea that objective truth exists and that there is actually a way to try to get to objective truth in the universe that's apparently a white thing so are you saying that people who are not white are just completely emotional and relative and subjectivist It's crazy. So this is their attempt. So by saying that whiteness in general equals oppression, it equals bigotry, it equals slavery, it equals white supremacy, whiteness in general is just a bad thing that always oppresses other people who are not white. And then saying that whiteness is individualism, is showing up on time for work, uh, liking your job, being a hard worker, caring about the nuclear family. They are saying that we need to get rid of that, which I think is a veiled attempt to try to say that capitalism and really just American individualism and even how the Constitution was set up on this idea of of the individual being endowed with certain inalienable rights. I think it is their slightly veiled, thinly veiled attempt at saying that we need to divest our country of whiteness. Therefore, we need to divest our country of all of these things that they are arbitrarily associating with whiteness in order to make an argument and to make a case for their cultural revolution to try to undo the American way of life by synonymizing it with this evil whiteness and bigotry, if that makes sense. I mean, this is racist. Like, in an attempt to try to say why white people are bad, they inherently are saying that people who aren't white are inferior. And that is, again, the craziness of the critical theory worldview. The craziness of the Marxist worldview is that it's so incoherent and inconsistent and is condescending and patronizing while trying to elevate the so-called oppressed. It is condescending and patronizing towards them. That is certainly true of the book, for example, White Fragility, John McWhorter, who is a professor and he is an expert in linguistics. He has written a lot of good stuff and is a very interesting and nuanced thinker. But he wrote a piece in The Atlantic about the condescension of the book, uh, of the book White Fragility that I highly encourage you to read. I'll include it in the description. But it's just so true. In an attempt to say that everything that is American or everything that is capitalistic or everything that has to do with hard work is white, you are saying that people who are not white are what? 
lazy and poor? I mean, that's, again, that sounds like a white supremacist argument to me. But anyway, back to Nick Cannon also being uh, also being a racist. So Nick Cannon says all this stuff on his show. He is not at all worried about being canceled for it. Because honestly, it's not a problematic view to talk badly about white people. It's not a problematic view to the cultural powers that be to talk about white people being evil or savages or, or closer to animals. And that's not why he got, why his show got pulled from Viacom. It was because he was also anti-Semitic in the things that he said. He touted these uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds, about the Zionist Jews that are running the world. And he said that we, black people, are the real Hebrews. He quoted Robert Griffin, whom he calls Professor Griff, who spreads these kinds kinds of ideas. In 1999, Griffin told the Washington Times that Jews are responsible for, quote, the majority of wickedness that goes on across the globe. Nick Cannon also quotes positively Louis Farrakhan, whom you all know um, he routinely calls Jews satanic, termites, wicked. Uh, the black Hebrew Israelites are a black supremacist group who believes this stuff. They believe that they are the real Israel. They are the real chosen people. They are the real Hebrews and that the Jewish people of today are just imposters and are satanic and evil. It's a wild conspiracy theory. There's no truth to it whatsoever. Unfortunately, it has infected how a lot of people in the black community think. So anti-Semitism is this very odd thing that it seems to exist in every group. There are professing Christians who buy into this nonsense. I've seen it on social media. It's very sometimes thinly veiled, but they believe that Jews are running and ruining the world. There's replacement theology that is also a form of anti-Semitism to say that we have replaced, Christians have replaced Jews Um as Israel, and that is actually not theologically correct. There are people in the alt-right who certainly believe this, and the left is a huge problem in general with anti-Semitism, especially in the UK. There is anti-Semitism among Muslims. There are white anti-Semites, and yes, there are black anti-Semites. Uh, this is a thing. We see it over and over again, but we're told we're not really allowed to talk about it very much because the stupid rules of intersectionality and critical theory say that we can only talk about white people to meet in a minority, but we've seen it. Like We saw it even in the Crown Heights riots in 1991. We see it in the violence from the black community in that area toward their neighboring Jews today. We've seen it in Louis Farrakhan, leader of the Nation of Islam. We see it in the sentiments of James Cone, the father of black liberation theology, who was a big fan of Karl Marx, who, even though he was an ethnic Jew, he called Jews uh, cheap hucksters who had to be radically changed or subdued in order to defeat capitalism. That's what Karl Marx believed. He wrote this whole thing called On the Jewish Question. It's terribly anti-Semitic. Uh, Deshaun Jackson, wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, posted this on his Instagram. White Jews will blackmail America. They will extort America. Their plan for world domination won't work if the Negroes know who they are. That's what Deshaun Jackson posted. It went on to say, his post, Negroes are the real children of Israel. He attributed the quote to Hitler. That wasn't a correct attribution. So it wasn't actually Hitler who said it, but he thought it was Hitler who said it. He said it was Hitler who said it, and he praised Hitler, agreed with Hitler for saying that. We're talking about Hitler. We're talking about the guy who slaughtered six million Jews in the Holocaust through torture and starvation in gas chambers. Deshaun Jackson agreed with him publicly on Instagram. And what happened to him? Well, the Eagle said, we're giving him a stern talking to, and he has to visit the Holocaust Museum via Zoom. And look, I, I'm glad that he's doing that. And I hope he learned something like I believe in redemption and grace and forgiveness. And I pray that God uses that to open his eyes and to change his heart and to realize that he was wrong in his ways. Like, I don't believe in cancellation of people and just disregarding people for the rest of their lives because of a mistake that, mistake that they made, no matter how uh, offensive it is. But the standards just don't seem to be the same for different kinds of racism for different kinds of players. A former NBA player, Steven Jackson, came to Deshaun Jackson's defense and said that he is, quote, speaking truth about the Jews. Ice Cube has tweeted a series of tweets blaming the Jews for the chaos in the world and the oppression of black people. Lots of people came to Nick Cannon's defense. NBA player Dwayne Wade tweeted in support of him. 
Although he did say later that he wasn't supporting what Nick said, just him in general, which, okay, we'll, we'll take his word on that. So Viacom dropped him for the anti-Semitic stuff, not the anti, anti-white stuff, but the anti-Semitic stuff. And Nick Cannon said this, I am deeply saddened in a moment so close to reconciliation that the powers that be misused an important moment for us all to grow closer together and learn more about one another. Instead, that moment was stolen and hijacked to make an example of an outspoken black man. What are you talking about, Nick Cannon? What are you talking about? We weren't even clo- we were not close to reconciliation because of your comment. You literally said that white people are subhuman and that Jewish people are ruining the world. And you're saying that that was a moment that we were close to reconciliation? He says, "As for Viacom, who is now on the wrong side of history." He says, I will continue to pray for you. I don't blame any individual. I blame the oppressive and racist infrastructure. Systemic racism is what this world was built on. Man, victimhood is a heck of a drug. So he's blaming systemic racism because he was fired or his show was dropped for being anti-Semitic. This is the unfortunate consequence of making victimhood an identity. You can't let go of it, even when you are clearly in the wrong, because society has said there are different moral standards for some groups. Um, It is impossible for the people who have believed that their whole, uh, who have believed their whole lives, that it is not up to them to take responsibility. This is true of every kind of person, of every background, of every ethnicity who has donned victimhood as an identity, anyone is susceptible to this. The problem is you can't grow that way. And society is filled with people with competing grievances. And we just can't get along if we keep heading in that direction. And again, that is not to say there aren't people who really have been oppressed or groups who haven't really been oppressed. And I'm not saying that talking about racism or saying that you have been a victim of racism makes you a victim. I am talking about when you are someone who like Nick Cannon has made a lot of himself, has worked really hard and been really successful. When you are in the wrong, when you are discriminating against other people and you get punished for that, you don't get to claim victimhood in that case. That doesn't mean that he's never been a victim of anything. That doesn't mean that we can't talk about victimhood where it really exists. But this is a clear case of victimhood becoming an identity to the point to where he is not even able to take responsibility for his own racism and the things that he did wrong. Now, I really don't care whether or not Nick Cannon stays at Viacom. Like, I believe in Nick Cannon's right to be as offensive as he wants to be, uh, to say whatever he wants to say about white people, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how racist. If Viacom wants to drop him for being anti-Semitic, that is their business. I'm not going to be the person that demands Nick Cannon's life is ruined all his partnerships terminated. I don't care. I feel the same way about Deshaun Jackson. I feel the same way about Sarah Zhang, that journalist who works at the New York Times. It came out when she was first hired that uh, she said several years ago all of these terrible, terrible things about white people. Of course, I don't like hatred. I don't like prejudice against anyone. I don't think it's good, and I'd rather them not say it. However, do I think that they should be threatened? Do I think that they should be canceled by the rage mob for these things? No, that that doesn't make things better, in my opinion. And the hiring standards of the New York Times clearly allow for that kind of rhetoric. So that's up to them. Same with the Eagles, same with Viacom. They can set the rules for their people. Every organization has expectations, has always had expectations for what their employees can and can't say and can and can't do. I do think that the standards should be the same across the board. That's where this trouble starts to come in. If we believe in justice, as we say we do, if we believe in fairness and equality, then we have to treat people equally, no matter what their skin color is. Like, who would have thought that that is a scandalous, a radical thing to say in 2020? No preferential treatment for certain skin colors, for certain skin tones, white or black, same standards of morality. Same standards of decency, same respect given, same respect expected. I'm talking not just individually, uh, but also in organizations, in politics, partiality towards anyone, towards uh, someone who is rich, towards someone who is poor, towards someone who is black, towards someone who is white, according to the Bible, for the Christian is a sin. Leviticus 19.15, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. 
God sees showing partiality to the poor or to the great, to one person or the other, no matter their station in life, as an injustice. Second Chronicles 19.7, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So God is impartial. Uh, Proverbs 28.21, To show partiality is not good. First Timothy 5.21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. James 2.9, But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Uh, Like I said, God himself shows no partiality, but is completely impartial, just, and righteous in all his judgments. Acts 10.34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Romans 2.11. For God shows no partiality. That is good news. Like that's good news that that is what God calls us to. That's what God calls define. Uh, that's what he uh, defines as justice, impartiality. And that is who he is. Like, aren't we glad that God is not a Marxist? Like, aren't we so glad that God is not calculating our guiltiness based on our group identity? How hopeless would that be? Uh, God made ethnicities and they are good. God made different skin tones and they are good. God allowed for different cultures and they are good. These things shouldn't be ignored. But when it comes to how he judges humanity, ultimately, ultimately, there are two categories, dead in sin and alive in Christ. He doesn't show partiality towards anyone based on their background. There are two ultimate, ultimate eternal categories. People of all backgrounds who are without Christ are dead in their sin, as Ephesians 2 tells us. And people of all backgrounds who are in Christ are are alive. There are not different levels of being dead. There are not gradations to being dead. If you are dead in your sin, as Ephesians 2 says, you are dead in your sin. You are without Christ. You are a stinking corpse. You are an enemy of God. You have no hope. But everyone who believes in Christ, who sets their hope on the finished work that Jesus accomplished for them on the cross, people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic classes, uh, criminal records and ethnicities, you are alive in Christ. You are a friend of God. You are a son or daughter of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are a co-laborer with Christ. You are in God's kingdom. Your name is written in the book of life and you will spend forever with him. Those Those are the two categories that matter the most. Uh, These are ultimately the two categories that divide humanity, not white and black, not American and Chinese, not Republican and Democrat, enemies of God and friends of God. And the difference between an enemy of God and a friend of God is Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins by his grace, repent from your former way of life, follow him, and you are now reconciled to a perfect holy God forever and ever. And that means that you and I, no matter what you look like, no matter where you're from, are my brother or sister in Christ. And that connection that we have as siblings in Christ is stronger than any connection that I have with a fellow conservative or with a fellow American who does not know Christ. You and I as Christians have been reconciled to God and that reconciles us to one another. The early church dealt with a lot of divisions. The epistles emphasize over and over again the importance of unity. The letters condemned partiality, arrogance, needless controversies. One of the divisions discussed was the division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jews were used to certain customs in a lot of places. Gentiles weren't, or they were all used to certain customs, but this became a big problem in certain places. Gentiles uh, weren't used to those customs. There were even some Jews in the early church insisting that Gentiles uh, follow their Jewish rules, even though they didn't have to. And there was apparently some tension between the two groups. Understandably, Romans 1.16 says, salvation came first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. And so there was some division between the two groups. But Ephesians 2 completely obliterates that division, which would have been a huge division at the time. Ephesians 2, 12 through 22. This is what the gospel does to two groups that are far apart, two groups that have even probably oppressed one another at different times. This is what Ephesians 2, 12 through 22 says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He's talking to Gentiles here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So the early Christians, they knew division. They were used to that. Like they were used to coming together with different groups of different backgrounds, having nothing in common except for their faith in Christ. And this passage, as well as several passages in the New Testament, is saying that that is enough. Like that is what brings us together. Now, of course, there are commands that come with that. There is treatment um, of people that is built on that gospel reconciliation, both us to God and to one another. So I'm not saying that we just preach the gospel and then we go on living how we want to live. But this is the driving force behind how we love people. Partiality towards people, whether they're black, whether they're white, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, is not loving our brother and sister in Christ. It's not loving our neighbor. It is not justice. And we should hold everyone to the same standard of decency, the same standard of respect. But specifically, when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are unified by the blood of Christ. The hostility, the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the malice, this is what Ephesians 4 talks about, is to be put away because that is how non-Christians act. That kind of division is true of the outside world. It should be, it should not be true in the church. And so the Bible actually commands us to have no partiality, to see everyone equally. And it is uh, through our love for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ who look differently than us, who the world, um, who the world thinks should be divided and should not like each other and have resentment against one another. It is our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that is a testimony to the rest of the world, to the Nick Cannons of the world who believe that they're always has to be some kind of racial hierarchy. And again, of course, we're white Christians or we're white people, the ones pushing that hierarchy throughout American history. Absolutely. But now is our opportunity as a church to show the world what unity really looks like that is impossible without the truth that is articulated in Ephesians 2, which is no partiality, which is that we are either dead in sin or alive in Christ. And we are not more guilty based on our skin color. We are not more holy based on our skin color. But the gospel is the great equalizer that we were dead in sin only through the grace and the power of God where we made alive in him. And it is because of that that we rejoice. It is because of that that we love our brothers and our sisters in Christ, and we even love the outside world all equally. And so we just reject this nonsense. Christians have to reject this nonsense that um, one group one group based on their group identity is guilty, and one group based on their group identity is innocent, and that we constantly have to play this game of cosmic justice to even out the scales. We believe in equality, equal dignity. We believe all people are made in the image of God, and we believe justice is impartial, and we hold everyone to the same standards. We do not buy into this redefinition of words that say some people are not held to the same moral standard as everyone else based on what some Marxist says about their group identity. We reject that craziness and we go to the word of God for our objective truth and our objective definitions of what justice is and what love should look like and how we should treat other people. Okay, that's all I have today. Monday, we'll take a break from all this craziness and we will just do a most miss you. So we will just be talking Bible for 30 or 40 straight minutes and uh, we will just we'll just ignore some of the chaos that is waging outside of our window. Okay, I hope that you guys have a great weekend and I will see you back here on Monday. 